0: Welcome to season one of the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer, and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. It can't have escaped your notice that Britain, and indeed much of the world, is in a pretty rubbish place financially speaking. Just about everyone is feeling the pinch from the cost of living crisis at the moment. So that is why I have chosen Austerity as the theme for this season. Now I'm not here to provide money or energy saving tips, as there are plenty of other podcasts and websites doing that very well already. What I plan to do with my guests this season is is look at how people have coped or reacted in times of austerity in the past. We'll be exploring everything from food riots, heroic ingredients, and the origins of some popular energy-saving devices. Although we are living in straightened times, there is no reason why the tradition of the comfortably hungry potluck supper can't continue, especially as the dishes provided are virtual after all. They may well be on the frugal side, but they will undoubtedly be delicious. So to wet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to bring along a virtual dish inspired by their topic. Welcome back to part two of Make Do and Cook, the final episode of season one. Last time I chatted to food writer Avashi Ro and food historian Sejal Sukhidwala about resourcefulness in the kitchen, particularly when it comes to store cupboard ingredients and leftovers. You can find details on Sejal's book The Philosophy of Curry and Avashi's book Biting Biting Snacking Gujarati Style in the show notes. In this part I discover that eating leftovers was not always embraced by some sectors of Indian society, While others took a more stalk to root approach to cooking vegetables, I know in Britain many a Sunday joint or the Christmas turkey has ended up as an anglicised curry over the years. Is there any part of India that uses up leftover meat?
1: Yeah, not really, because um, in India you'd buy meat in small quantities to put in curries. So you know there there isn't a tradition of uh, of cooking or roasting or baking large joints of meat like like in britain or like in western countries you just buy small amounts of meat or small you know like uh, a chicken to to put into your curries or your kebabs or your biryanis yeah there that, that just isn't that tradition of buying large joints of meat so you wouldn't have leftover
0: meat to put in curries in Victorian times, one of the go-to recipes for using up any leftover meat, I'm talking in grand houses, obviously most people didn't have a yeah. lot of meat, is it's always something curried. And there are some yeah. quite unusual, we shall say, interpretations. And when I say curried, I'm talking about obviously bog-standard Victorian curry powder. which yeah, um, curry powder, uh, lemon
1: juice uh, usually, and usually
0: cream. Well, that's, that's the nicer version. usually thickened <laughs> with flour and quite gloopy and really not
2: very pleasant. But I think you can use meat now. So my family eat meat, Sam. I've I've never eaten meat, but I do eat fish now. But, you know, my husband obviously grew up eating meat and the girls will eat meat other than beef. I mean, they're both over 18 now, so they can make their own choices, but they choose not to eat beef. But the other day they had, you know, we did a roast dinner on Sunday. And so Tony always roasts the whole chicken and there's, you know, elements of the chicken that's left. I actually quite see it as a bit of a challenge when that happens because I know that they love chicken and sweet corn curry, for example, which is a really English dish, right? It's not Gujarati dish. And I have no clue how to make a chicken and sweet corn curry. I've never had to learn how to make that before. But I kind of just make three tin shack with sweet corn and coconut, and then I just lob in the chicken at the end served on top of rice. They love it. So I do think that there is a place for leftover meat in curry or shak, as we say in in Gujarat. And I think that, as Sejal was talking about earlier, that comes into this genre of third generation cooking. You know, my girls eat meat and my girls mm-hmm. will learn how to cook my food. I think that it's that generation that will then take some of our base recipes and actually you know I was reading Gerd Loyal's book because I was I was due to be with him at a festival in Glasgow in May and he has a recipe for dokra you know we're talking about dokra just now which are is basically like a steamed um savory cake for want of a better word but he has always eaten that with bacon and I remember reading that and going what Dorkra with bacon? Are you having a laugh? Um, and I remember like and I was really looking forward to having this conversation with him. I cannot even imagine Dorkra with bacon. I've never Mm. eaten bacon, so that's kind of like a bit unfair. So I posed it to my daughter and I said, This guy has got a recipe in his book for Dorkra, but he has it with bacon. And she said, actually, Mama, I think that will taste really good. So, you know, I think it's really fascinating the way that our children and their generation are looking at food and looking the way that they have eaten food and then thinking about, oh, I'll just add a bit here because I've got a bit of that in the fridge.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, diaspora cooking is different because when they make turkey, because families, you know, families in the UK, Indian families in the UK, they do make turkey or chicken or goose. And when they have leftover meat, they do turn it into curries. So, yeah, that happens here. But uh, I was just thinking, like, in terms of the tradition, India is not buying large joints of meat or large birds so that you'd have leftover to put in curries. Uh, you just buy, buy small quantities in the first place.
0: Historically speaking though, not everyone was in India was keen on the use of leftover food. Can you explain a bit about those who didn't approve of eating leftovers?
1: I mean, there's a bit of a contradiction because on one, one hand, you know, Leftover food was a taboo, but even bigger taboo is food waste. And this was because, I mean, for health and safety reasons, you know, it was uh, seen as like containing germs. And unless you heated it up thoroughly, uh, the germs could make you ill, which is the advice that, you know, that's relevant to modern times as well. You'd have like health inspectors saying the same thing. So in ancient India, the, the same thing, you know, the old scriptures, Indian scriptures say the same thing that you shouldn't eat leftover food because you know just in case um they have like harmful uh, germs and harmful bacteria in fact jains they don't eat leftover food especially strict jains because it contains bacteria and they're not allowed in their religion to eat living beings and bacteria is a living you know living thing so they're not allowed to eat um leftover food and observant hindus uh apart from like health and safety we reasons uh, another reason is that it's it's to do with the caste system because if you're a brahmin you were only supposed to eat pure food there's there are all these rules and rituals around food purity so pure foods were supposed to be like foods which were freshly cooked especially fried in ghee you know that's uh, uh, that's called uh, pakka food Kachaf food was food that was cooked in water, so that was considered to be inferior because the water didn't kill off the germs sufficiently enough. Whereas if you fried something in ghee, you know, uh, it would kill off the germs. So Brahmins were supposed to eat this freshly cooked food. Another reason being that if you had leftover food like lying around in a kitchen a person from lower caste might touch it and contaminate it so you're supposed to eat your food as soon as possible after cooking it so that you know it didn't it didn't get touched by uh, the lower caste i don't believe in the caste system but this is i'm, I'm just yeah explaining in terms of you know how uh, how it was seen in those days if you're a person of, of a lower caste you could actually eat leftovers if it was received from someone of a higher caste. If a person of a lower caste was given leftovers by a Brahmin, for instance, they would be happy to eat it or it would be considered to be an honor to eat leftover food from someone from from an upper caste because Brahmins were top of the caste system and they they wouldn't eat any leftovers from anyone apart from leftover food that was offered to uh, the gods in in the form of Prasad. And Prasad is a, a small quantity of food usually cooked in ghee and very often it's sweet. And it's uh, placed in front of uh, the idols of God in a, in a temple or a home shrine, and then you distribute it to all the or the devotees or family members afterwards. So it's fine to eat that kind of leftover food by a Brahmin, but otherwise a Brahmin wouldn't eat uh, any leftovers from anyone else. The other thing is that in ancient India, you would, you could eat leftover food from your teacher if you're a pupil or your employer, if you're an employee. So it's fine to eat leftovers from your superiors, but not you know, you, not the other way around. Like you couldn't eat leftovers from someone of a lower caste. Then there was this practice of giving leftover food to outcasts, which were people who were shunned by society, like thieves and men who cheated on women, or outcasts who lived on the out, outskirts of villages and towns. And they would be given leftovers in broken dishes. It was really like leftover food was really looked down on. And now the attitude has changed completely because now it's like it's prized. You know, anyone who can cook with leftovers, they're admired. And it's very much sought after. You know, people cook extra in order to use leftovers and turn them into new, you know, delicious new dishes. So the attitude has changed completely now. But in ancient India, that wasn't the case.
0: Do you think the attitudes have changed because of the effects of perhaps things like the Second World War? I know in this country, both of my grandmothers uh, and perhaps to a little lesser extent, my mother, they certainly were very resourceful. They would always use leftovers right down to things like bacon fat, which was one of the things that was always touted when you look at uh, World War Two cookery books from Britain. You know, save your bacon fat because you could use it for all sorts of things. Was it similar in India? Did that sort of... War time privation have an effect on future generations after the war.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think people learn to value ingredients more. There's also a awareness of poverty. You know, there are lots of starving people in India, and people who are privileged and are wealthy, they're really aware of you know how the rest of the country doesn't get enough to eat, and it's hammered into you at an early age that you shouldn't you shouldn't be too fussy. Uh, about eating or not, you know, not eating certain things because there are people out there who are starving, who are not getting enough to eat. So, yeah, there is an increased awareness of value of ingredients since the Second World War. But there's also increased awareness of poverty and starvation and economy, just general, you know, sort of inequalities as well and there's also practice in India whereby you would give your leftover food to your domestic help because lots of people like the Victorian times you know lots, lots of people even now they have domestic servants I mean the food wouldn't go wasted you know you'd either eat it because many people live in extended families so there's always someone to eat you know just eat up the food or you'd give it to your neighbors not necessarily leftover food but if you think you cook too much you just you know just pack up a container and give it to your neighbours. You'd also feed leftover food to animals like cows and goats and even cats and dogs. I mean, basically, food waste is, um, like I said before, it's a bigger taboo than, than eating leftovers.
2: I think, Sam, though, as well, there's an element of Ayurveda in a lot of this. So I've grown up with elements of Ayurveda all my life, where mum has said to me, Oh, you can't eat that. You know, like I remember before Navratri, which is one of our key festivals, or before uh, a which is like a religious festival for Mataji, which is one of our goddesses, that, you know, mum wouldn't allow me to eat hot foods because hot foods bring on your period and you can't be on your period when you go to these, these celebrations. I've never really understood it until I really read Sebastian Pohl's book, which is called Apaka Life, which is a fascinating book if you've never read it. My dad is one of those people that really struggled with eating leftovers because in Ayurveda you have sattvic foods, rajasic foods and tamasic foods and leftovers or food that is reheated is tamasic food and tamasic food is meant to make you lazy and meant to bring you negative emotions and so they minimize how much of that is eaten and I as I say I'm not an expert in Ayurveda but I know that my mum struggled with giving my father yesterday's food and I remember those conversations when I was little and I, you know, remember, we used to live in a council house in Hanwell. And I remember the hushed voices when my mum would have maybe heated up something from yesterday and not made something fresh because, you know, she worked from five o'clock in the morning until 6 p.m. and she got home at seven. And, you know, it's not really feasible to put immediate food on the table. And so I remember those hushed conversations. And I remember my dad being a very stubborn, typical Indian Gujarati man. And it took. A long time to get a microwave because the principles behind reheating something are not ayurvedic in ayurveda you wouldn't reheat food you wouldn't eat yesterday's food my dad used to call it tajul. it's like you don't eat that but you know now he does
0: so how does that fit in with the, the snacking thing when you if you're using in terms of the leftovers would your dad not initially not eat something that no. was made of leftovers
2: no because you know he came from a family that didn't have leftovers. And they didn't have, as, as Segel said, they would have given those leftovers or whatever the surplus was to others in the village or to the cows or to the animals. You know, my grandfather was the mayor of Rajgot and he was really well known. And, you know, it was, they had, my father's brother was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. They weren't poor. So there wouldn't have been leftovers, whereas in my mum's, that was a different kettle of fish. My my grandfather on my mum's side was, you know, very, very into charity work and they had a very different outlook. So I think that, you know, Sejal says you have this customs that folks have grown up with in India and the traditions in India that are inherent into their upbringing. But then there's this necessity to change because you're in a new country now. And you can't necessarily carry over all of those traditions. And you've got to stick your pride somewhere and suck it up. Because frankly, the 50 quid that you came over with, with your three kids and your wife, it's not going to buy you fresh food every day.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? I know Nigella created a bit of a stir a few years ago, didn't she? When she made a banana peel curry. And I've yet to try that, actually. It sounds a hideous, of... but I do want to try it. A lot of people threw their hands up in horror. <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, it's it's a banana peels are a form of vegetable offal. And it's not actually a new concept, is it, Sajal?
1: Yeah, in in South India, there is some, I mean, it's not really curry. It's like a dry, it's more like a shark or a subzi. So it's like a dry uh uh, some side vegetable but banana peels are chopped into small pieces and the they're, uh, they're stir fried with curry leaves mustard seeds green chilies and spices and also urad dal or chana dal which are used used like spices in india so you know all these things are stir fried and i mean it's made into a poran which is a uh, which is side vegetable which is eaten with uh, dal and rice
2: is it the green banana
1: skin it's green or yellow banana.
2: See, I can't imagine using like, you know, like when you have bananas that are ready for the banana bread.
1: Yeah. That kind oh, of banana. Oh, my mom, actually, my mum makes really lovely uh, p- like peel on banana curry and bananas with with the peels, are uh, they're cut into two or three pieces and they're slit in the middle and they're stuffed with the chickpea flour masala. So it would be uh, toasted chickpea flour and uh, cumin powder, uh, coriander powder, turmeric powder, and red chilli powder. And they would be stuffed in the middle of, uh, I mean, each banana piece would be stuffed with this mixture. And then it would be just cooked in a gravy. And it's a really lovely, sweet and savoury curry, which uses bananas with a with peel on. So I think the idea of cooking with Fruit peel—it's—it's it's not new in India at all. I mean, yeah, when Nigella did it, it causes a. Stir. Actually, I don't know what her recipe is like, but it's—it's it's not a new thing in India at all.
0: Speaking of vegetable off, we're talking about vegetable peel, seeds, yeah. the bits that we would normally throw away when we prepare yeah. vegetables.
1: Yeah, these are used uh, in some parts of India in in many communities. For instance, you know, cauliflower stems and leaves. They used in North India to make sabzi, which is a side vegetable, to eat with dal and rice. It's basically just leaves and stems chopped up with spices like fennel seeds and garam masala, chilies, and so on. And my mom makes a pickle from cauliflower stems and leaves. And what she does is she chops them up and she um, marinates them in some oil, neutral oil, like uh, sunflower oil, uh, some salt, red chili powder, turmeric powder, uh, asafoetida, and then coarsely ground fenugreek seeds and coarsely ground mustard seeds and if you rub, rub everything together and if you just set it aside for a day or two uh you could you can eat it as a fresh pickle to go with your dal and rice like so she kimchi, does that. I suppose. yeah yeah um like fresh fresh kimchi yeah that's right so yeah the stems and leaves are used but you have to make sure that you remove all the stringy bits and all the hard bits because you know you don't want to eat those you know they, they they taste quite rough then bengali Bengalis make potato peel stir fry, Uh, especially, you know, it was a dish invented by widows in Bengal because they were supposed to eat austere vegetarian food. They weren't, they were seen to be not enjoying life, you know, after their husband's death. Uh, They were seen to be living this really kind of life of, you know, uh, just plain kind of life of grief and repentance. Uh, as if, you know, they had a hand in the husband's death. It was a really bad attitude, actually, but lots of really delicious vegetarian dishes came out of it. And one of them is potato peel stir fry, where you you have potato peelings and you stir fry them with white poppy seeds and nigella seeds and green chilies in mustard oil. And the mustard oil brings that pungency, you know, to the potato peelings. And it's a really delicious dish that you eat with, again, with, you know, with rice and dal, then in Goa, lots of people grow jackfruit in the gardens. So you use the jackfruit seeds in your curries to add uh, texture and extra flavor because they, they taste of chestnuts. So they, they bring an extra uh, dimension of flavor and the, the seeds can be ground up and mixed with hot milk to produce something which is called jackfruit coffee, jackfruit seed coffee, but it's not coffee. It's just a hot beverage. Made from jackfruit seeds, and that that's absolutely delicious as well. It's very nutritious. And in in South India, for instance, you'd use like garlic, you know, whole garlic in the pods without peeling them, and you'd stir fry them with spices as well. So in in you know in various parts of India, you'd use peels and seeds and stems, and you know it's it's, it's um, the whole vegetable basically, just like you know you use whole animal in some communities in India. And uh, that's all about resourcefulness.
2: I think today, though, it's more about practicality, right? So I have had shark curry, which is made from peeled potatoes. But then I've also mum has made shark where she hasn't peeled the potatoes. And I think it's a factor of time, right? I remember yeah. mum coming home after having done her shift in, in the Gillette factory where she used to work in Brentford. And I'm sure that some days she just thought, you know what, bugger this. I'm not peeling this bloody potato today. I just am going to cut and chop it up and I'm going to give it a wash, chop it up and that's it, be done with it. And I'm the same, you know, I have a full time job. And when my girls were little, um, oftentimes, you know, you've got that window between they turn into complete monsters where you have to get food on the table. And it's a choice between do I peel the potato or do I not peel the potato? You don't have to peel the potato. It's perfectly fine to have the curry with the potato, the carrot sambar with the Unpeeled carrots, so mm.
1: it's actually think, seen as more nutritious these days, right, you know, Because exactly. because housewives are more kind of savvy about things like nutrition, so they actually leave deliberately leave leave the peels and skins on.
2: Yeah, and I don't think these questions get asked because I remember. So we have this dish, Sam, which is called farar nushak. And faranushak is shak that we have when we're fasting. So unlike Muslims, we do eat when we fast, but we eat very specific foods and simple spices. And faranushak is made with green chilies, salt, black pepper, and potatoes. And I remember it's one of Tony's favourite dishes, actually. And I remember him asking my mum to teach him how to make it when I was pregnant because I couldn't cook anything when I was pregnant; it just made me feel so violently ill. And he had a whole conversation with her about, do I peel the potato or do I not peel the potato? Because you've given me both. So which one is she going to like? Because the woman is pregnant. I need to feed her. Which one is she going to like? And my mum said, well, whichever you prefer. And he was like, no, you need to tell me, do I peel the potato or do I not peel the potato? (laughs) And that's when it came up, right? So I do think that there is this creativity or creative license rather than just the resourcefulness that comes into play because you know some vegetables do taste great with the peel on like I personally really love roasted beetroot and I keep the peel on the skin on because I think as Segil says it adds that extra flavor but also nutritional element to the skin same with carrots and yeah okay it might not look as good as a peeled version but sometimes you know time dictates what you cook.
1: The, the other thing is if you peel your vegetables, you can use the peelings to make chutneys as well. So some people deliberately peel them in order to make chutneys out of all the peelings.
2: And also the honour of going and feeding a cow. Like I remember when I went to visit my granddad, I was about eight years old and it was my job to take the peelings to the cow out in the yard. And I was given that duty of feeding the cow. And that's like super important. Mm.
0: And I remember
2: being so proud that it was me that had the task of taking every single peeling that my aunties had made from the dinner that they were cooking, gathering up and not wasting any of it to feed the cow that gives us ghee, that gives us milk. You know, so I think there's it's so... I think it's quite complex. I don't think it's as simple as resourcefulness.
0: Now we come to my favourite bit of the podcast when I find out just what delights my guest is contributing to the season's virtual and humble potluck supper. And so, Jo, what would you bring?
1: Well, if I, if there was any leftover curry in Goa, what they do is they heat up the curry the next day for breakfast and make sure that all the liquid is evaporated. So you're left with a thick paste, basically, you know, uh, your central ingredient and spices turned into like a thick dip-like paste. And then bread is dipped into it and eaten for breakfast. And this is what they do in Goa. So if you have any leftover curry, that's that's one way of using it up. And another thing I, will, I love doing is if I have any leftover potatoes, potato shark, uh, because I'm good yes. as well. So there's potato shark. You just put it between in a sandwich toaster. You just put it yes. between two slices of buttered bread and you have a, a uh shark toasted sandwich and you can put some cheese on it, uh, in it, or just eat it on its own. And but you have to eat it with tomato ketchup. You know, for, oh, no. For, for yeah. No, no, no. You <laughs> I, you're going to out now. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> so when you say
0: tomato yeah. ketchup, you mean like Heinz tomato ketchup. Yeah, Other Heinz... brands are available, folks. But, uh, yeah, you mean like British yeah. ketchup.
1: Yeah, yeah. So if you have any leftover, like even if you like have, you know, the night before, if you have like from from restaurant takeaway, if you have aloo gobi or any sort of potato-based curry or side vegetable left, just put it in between two slices of bread, put it in a sandwich toaster with or without cheese and then have it with tomato ketchup for me, not not for Urbashi um, and, uh, and green sh- green chutney, which is green, green chutney. And chutney.
2: Yeah, and that I would totally be... agree until the ketchup, but I don't necessarily toast it. I go with, you know, the cheap, soft white bread. Yeah. Yeah. Not the posh stuff. It has to be the cheap, soft white bread yeah. that you make a shack sandwich with.
1: There's so much you can do, you know, with uh, leftover rice. I mean, I love uh, frying it up with onions and garlic mm-hmm. and spices and chapatis as well. If you have leftover chapatis, you can do the same thing. Or you can um, cook them with uh, in a gravy made from yogurt. So, And chapatis or rice can be turned into fritters, into... Pancakes into dumplings, you know, all kinds of different different things. Sadhul so, I mean,
2: dominating your table here, Sam. She's bringing more than one dish. Yeah, I'm, I'm, this is I'm not allowed. It. I would, you got to take one.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would I would dominate the table with all these kind of leftover Gujarati dishes. <laughs> but no, I, I would stick to the, uh, the you know because I've written a book about the history of curry. I, I would stick to the curry idea. Yeah. If you have any leftover curry, just turn it into either thick paste, go on style. Or just fungi between two slices of uh, bread, put it in a sandwich toaster. It's worth investing in a in a sandwich toaster just for this
0: reason. So that you mean like the Breville sandwich toasters? No, no, it's no, got to no. be, be a
2: good one. It's got to be the one that is round, that has. So it's basically two round metal discs, right? And then well, no, it's I got have handles. A, I... You have No, no, that
1: I one? have. I have. I have regular sandwich toaster.
2: Uh, oh, so Sajal's got yeah. the posh sandwich toaster. We used to yeah, use the yeah. round one on top of a naked flame.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the traditional way of doing it. That's how a lot of people do it in India as well. Uh, but I just have a regular sandwich toaster, which I was given, I think, when I was a student. So that was, you know, many, many years ago. And um, I've used it for this kind of thing ever since.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So where can people get hold of your books? The
1: Philosophy of Curries available from the British Library shop and online from Amazon and other online sources and from bookshops like Waterstones. It's available internationally.
0: What's on next on the horizon for you?
1: Well, um, I've been working on an Indian food dictionary for about five years. So I'm writing one entry, researching and writing one entry per day uh, which is a very slow way of doing it, but it's usually because I'm juggling in between other things, you know, uh, deadlines and so on. I do have some other book ideas as well, uh, which I've started discussing with publishers. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should focus on my dictionary because it's it's going to take uh, because the cuisine is really complex. It, it might take another five years to complete. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a huge. It's a huge, ambitious project. It'll be amazing, though. Yeah, and it's and it's really complicated because the food is hyper regional, um, and there are, you know, for every dish, there are so many different regional and hyper regional versions, and there are so many different names in different Indian languages, and information and history of each dish. I mean, it's it's hard to find, you know, this information. So I'll ha- I'll have to do like multiple trips to oh. India. Any excuse, really. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's 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 going well. I've been working on it for five years and I think there's a few more years to go.
0: Thank you once again to Ravashi Ro and Sijal Sukadwala for helping me round off season one with a fascinating discussion. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to Ravashi and Sijal's books, articles and social media channels. And thank you for listening to this episode and indeed my first podcast series. If you enjoyed it, please let me know on x at sjfbilton or Instagram at mrsbilton, that's with two s's. And if you really loved this episode, please rate and review it on Apple. It really does help listeners discover and engage with the show as they explore new podcasts. If you'd like to discover more about my work, pop along to sambilton.com where you'll find details on my books on gingerbread and saffron, as well as the Comfortably Hungry blog. You may also want to subscribe to the Comfortably Hungry newsletter on Substack, which complements this show. It includes recipes and more detailed notes from the season's episodes. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple, among other platforms, so that you never miss an episode. That's it for season one of the Comfortably Hungry podcast. Don't forget to check out the earlier austerity episodes in this season on food riots, pressure cookers, tripe, hay boxes and potatoes. I'll be back in the autumn with a new Comfortably Hungry podcast series linked to my next book, The Philosophy of Chocolate. I'm off now to enjoy all those wonderful dishes my guests contributed to the season's potluck supper, but I'll be back soon. This podcast was created, researched, produced, recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by Zapsplat.com.